Today's movie proves the truth is out there once and for all. Or does it? Good news and bad news, girls. The good news is your dates are here. What's the bad news? They're dead. I'm gonna take you to the bank. Welcome, B-Movie Maniacs, to another episode of B-Movie Babylon, a safe space for trash cinema lovers where we firmly believe the B in B-Movie stands for brilliant. I'm your host, Mike Bracken. Some of you may know me as the horror geek on YouTube or from my stint on Comedy Central's old pop culture game show, Beat the Geeks. Others will remember me as that dick on social media. And really, I'm all of the above. No matter how you know me, thanks for being here as we stalk the forgotten corners of the video store in search of the best B-Movies ever made. Whether you love martial arts mayhem, low-budget rip-offs of popular movies, direct-to-video skinamax flicks, classic horror fair, sleaze, or exploitation, I've got you covered. Today, we're tackling a historically important film that was essentially the birthing point for the modern found footage genre. It's a film made for pennies, thought lost for years, and then fed to UFO enthusiasts who thought it was real video proof that aliens existed and were abducting humans. So buckle up, because we're about to discuss Dean Aliotto's The McPherson Tape. But before we get into the details of this found footage classic, let's first talk a bit about how I discovered this one. One of the recurring themes of this show is me talking in every episode about what a weird kid I was. And I was a weird kid. On the upside, the one benefit of this show has been learning some of you are weird kids too. I was a gifted kid growing up, and all of us were a little strange, but even by those metrics, I was weird. The other gifted kids like to play chess or talk philosophy or maybe play a little D&D if no one was looking. I, on the other hand, wanted to talk about the occult, terrible moments in history, trashy movies and books, and all kinds of other weird shit. So, like if the regular gifted kid was basically a walking, talking issue of the New Yorker magazine, I was essentially the gifted kid version of the Weekly World News. A brand new story of how they found Batboy in a cave or Satan's face in a smoke cloud from a fire, basically. I mean, don't get me wrong, I could play chess and talk about existential philosophy and all that jazz, but frankly, I found it all boring. I mean, seriously, I was the kid in sixth grade who made his mother buy him old-fashioned black ink, like the kind you used with a quill, and then proceeded to pour it into a giant bowl, ruining said bowl, in my quest to make a scrying pool like the one I read about in my first book on witchcraft. Which, if you're really curious, was Gavin and Yvonne Frost, the magic power of witchcraft. Which I'm pretty sure blipped onto my radar after seeing it as an ad in a pro wrestling magazine. While my gifted kid friends were doing elaborate science fair projects, I was trying to contact the dead and learn how to astral project. <laughs> Not gonna lie, it was way more fun than most of those guys. Seriously, my science fair project one year in junior high was some bullshit on hypnosis. Needless to say, I did not win. I'm not entirely sure how I became a weird kid. I learned to read before I got into kindergarten because my mother bought me Godzilla, Spider-Man, and Star Wars comic books. My parents were bookworms, and my love of horror, at least on some level, comes from my mother, who was an avid constant reader of Stephen King. She really never branched out into the genre beyond King like I did, but I remember seeing King's books around the house, and eventually I started reading them. At a way too young age, probably. Anyway, as usual, I'm getting way off course here. But I know from the comments, people like hearing about my weird childhood for some reason. There are a lot more tangents here, but let me get us back to the actual connection to today's episode. So, my parents were avid readers. They were not particularly avid film fans, though. Which was a passion I cultivated on my own and with my maternal grandmother. We did watch a lot of TV. 
my parents are some of the last people I know who still watch regular primetime TV when it actually airs. My dad won't even binge things. They were watching Breaking Bad on streaming, and even though the whole run of episodes was there, my dad would basically watch one a week. Growing up in the late 70s and into the 80s, we didn't have cable. Yeah, basically five channels if the weather was good and you could get a signal. Or if the weather was shitty. We did have two televisions for a time, which was sort of a luxury, but one of them really didn't work well. So you basically watch TV together. And let me tell you, my parents and my sister and I do not have the same taste in television or films. So this man, I got stuck watching a fucking metric shit ton of crap like Little House on the Prairie. But man, did I geek out over that slasher film episode they did. Highway to Heaven and just shit like that. But the one thing in my early childhood that we watched pretty regularly and absolutely turned me into who I am today was In Search Of. In Search Of ran from like 1977 to 1982 in its initial run and was hosted by Leonard Nimoy. Growing up as a big original Trek fan, I mean, you can keep your Picard next generation, thanks. I loved Spock, so I was immediately interested in this show. Beyond that, the show had a great opening theme and credits. In Search Of was basically schlock reality TV before schlock reality TV took over television, and it quickly became my low-key favorite non-cartoon show. Anyway, every episode of In Search Of was devoted to discussing some conspiracy theory or mystery, complete with some very dubious science in interviews with experts. Because of In Search Of, I grew up with a genuine fear that I'd someday accidentally fly into the Bermuda Triangle, never to be seen again. Growing up in those years, I was firmly convinced the greatest causes of death for children were basically 1. Quicksand, 2. The Bermuda Triangle, and 3. Bigfoot. One of those things was going to kill me guaranteed unless I was vigilant at every turn. Naturally, this sort of show was going to talk about UFOs at some point. I mean, it came into existence after producer Alan Landsberg had done three one-hour documentary shows on Chariots of the Gods and the like, and was originally set to be hosted by Rod Serling before his passing, so yeah, we were definitely getting UFOs. And that happened in 1980, when Nimoy hosted an episode about UFO conspiracies and cover-ups. Alan covered Roswell, Project Blue Book, and Hangar 18 at the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. This was maybe my first real exposure to the whole UFO thing. I'd have been about eight at the time, and boy, was I fucking hooked. Interestingly enough, back in the early 2000s, one of the Z-grade cable channels was rerunning those original In Search Of episodes every day. Revisiting it was wild, because it was one part pure nostalgia, one part me cracking up at theories from the 70s and 80s that had been completely debunked, and 100% still amazing. I mean, look, that show just holds up. It takes me right back to being a kid in my parents' living room in our first house. So, this particular episode of In Search Of was basically my introduction to what they call gray lore and all of that. I'm not entirely sure on the timeline here because I was a kid, but we lived in the country and I would then spend nights peering out of my second story bedroom window into the dark sky over the woods behind us in search of flying saucers. Unfortunately, I never saw a UFO, but in that same time period, one of our neighbors swore he saw one flying over a cornfield near his house late at night. Young me believed every word. 51-year-old me is slightly more skeptical because the guy who saw the saucer was a big drinker and probably burned his own house down for insurance money a few years later. I don't think they ever proved that, but we were all like 99.9% .9 sure he did. At any rate, I was more of a horror kid than a sci-fi kid. I mean, we all love Star Wars, but Star Wars really kind of transcended sci-fi into its own thing. But UFOs were the bridge between the genres for me. These weren't the adorable alien of E.T., these aliens were killing cows and probing butts. I was scary and I was all in. 
From there, we jump ahead to 1987, and by this point, I'm a bona fide horror geek. I mean, I can tell you pretty much anything you want to know about American slasher movies. I'm watching director commentary tracks on Laserdisc at a friend's house because it's the closest thing to film school in Florida. I already know deep inside that I want to be a writer more than anything in the world. I want to write horror novels until I die and maybe some screenplays. I'm also reading a lot of books at that point because I too am an avid reader like my parents. Any trip to the mall guarantees I'm going to spend an hour in Walton books trying to convince my parents to buy stuff like Journeys Out of the Body. Because man, did I spend like a good two years working very diligently trying to learn how to astral project as an early teen. And of course, I was always looking for horror novels. And then one day, I actually convinced them to get me a copy of Whitley Strieber's Communion. Whitley Strieber was a horror writer. He gave us both Wolfen and The Hunger. But Communion was nonfiction and chronicled his experiences with lost time and flashbacks to real alien encounters he firmly believes he endured. I suppose this is as good a time as any to talk about my own beliefs on the topic of extraterrestrials. I firmly believe that we are not alone in the universe. The place is too big and too vast to just accept that this is the only place in all of that vastness that created some kind of intelligent life. I'm not entirely sure aliens have been here. I mean, the logistics of that kind of space travel are daunting at best, but I'm also very open to the possibilities. I would not be shocked if it came out aliens had been here and we had interacted with them on some level. I don't really buy into the whole Area 51 government cover-up stuff exactly, but I firmly believe there's other intelligent life out there. Statistically speaking, it just makes sense. Anyway, Communion had a big impact on me after reading it. Still not convinced any of it actually happened. I mean, false memory shit is how we got satanic panic cases. But I believe Whitley Strieber believes it, and it's a harrowing read even if you just view it as false memories or complete fiction. After Communion got turned into a film, we really had sort of a UFO story renaissance. We'd get that film, we'd get The X-Files, Alien Autopsy, and reality TV shows definitely loved a good alien story. And it was while I was sort of exploring that stuff that I first heard about the McPherson tape. Except no one was really calling it that back in the 90s. We've talked in previous episodes about how I found a lot of weird movies back in the old days by trading dubs with other cult movie nerds and ordering from places like Revoc, Blackest Heart Media, and Video Search in Miami. And that was where I first encountered the McPherson tape, which was still UFO abduction at that time as I recall. The catalog description described it as videotaped footage of people trapped in a house as they were attacked by aliens. I really didn't need to know anything more than that. I was all in on seeing that thing come hell or high water. I don't remember the exact year I first saw the McPherson tape, but it was definitely the truncated this is real version that made the rounds of various UFO conventions back in the day. We'll talk more about how that came to be later, but it was definitely easy to see why people bought into it. The lo-fi approach 100% works in its favor, and really, even when I finally saw it in the latter half of the 90s, we still didn't have this kind of found footage film to compare it to. By today's standards, it definitely feels like a found footage film, and the photo of the girls with their alien heads at the end definitely cements it as a piece of clever filmmaking and not legitimate found footage. But for its time, it just worked. We were not as media savvy as we are today back then. Although I suppose that's up for debate, seeing as the amount of obviously fake dumb shit I see people pass around on social media is real. But I've always been a fan of this one. I like found footage in general, and this one is a real landmark film in that subgenre. Alright, enough rambling from me. Let's take a quick break, and when we come back, I'll talk about the wild history of the McPherson tape, and how a whole lot of UFO enthusiasts still think it's real, and will never be convinced it's not.
For a lot of these episodes, I generally go through the movie in detail with regards to the plot. It's kind of challenging with this film because it's really not a complicated narrative, which is probably why it works so well. So let me just give you the Cliff's Notes version here. The film tells the tale of the Van Hees family, who have gathered in an isolated home to celebrate a granddaughter's birthday in 1983. The kicker here is the teenage son has recently gotten a new Betamax camcorder, so he's going to tape the evening in that typically amateur home video way we all recorded holiday gatherings in the dawn of the camcorder era. But hey, at least he didn't shoot it in portrait mode like all of you dorks with your cell phone cameras. The evening starts out like you'd expect. Dinner, jokes, conversation, but then the power goes out. The three sons head out to investigate and see a bright light flash overhead. They investigate further and find that the light was an alien spacecraft that's landed in the middle of the forest. And worse, the aliens spotted them. They flee back to the house and take up arms, but then go about their evening like nothing happened. Which admittedly is a little weird, but Aliotto will explain his rationale for that shortly. They do this until at least one of the aliens winds up on the roof. So they kill it, and then for some reason decide to bring the body inside. And the rest of the aliens are not going to leave their comrade behind. After they abduct two of the men, they then use some sort of alien mind control to get the remaining family members in the house to let them inside. Oh, and the dead alien isn't dead. The film ends with a candid shot of the aliens entering the house, looking at the camera, and then it fades to static, leaving the fate of the Van Heeses up to the viewer to determine. See, it's simple. And sometimes simple really is better, especially in horror films. When director Dean Aliotto first discovered that his feature film debut, a film he thought was lost forever, as we'll discuss in a bit, was making waves on the UFO convention circuit where UFO experts insisted it was real footage of an actual alien encounter and abduction, his initial response was, that's fucking genius. Aliotto had set out to make a low-budget feature to break into the business, and budget concerns limited what he could do pretty dramatically. But the idea of selling a shot-on-video home movie as a real alien encounter had never occurred to him. Although, to be fair, the film is definitely trying to get people to buy into the illusion of reality. It opens with a title card about how the film is composed of footage from the, quote, Northwoods UFO case, wherein a family recorded an alien encounter on an October night in 1983. But it also has credits, and really, most home recordings of alien abductions generally don't have a cast listing or crew. At any rate, this ties into Aliotto's mission statement, which was basically to make a shot-on-video movie that would play like the War of the Worlds radio telecast in terms of scaring viewers. And given what happened in the intervening years, it seems like that mission was a success. The film was made in 1989, ten years prior to The Blair Witch Project and nine years prior to The Last Broadcast. Two films often cited for popularizing the modern found footage format. That essentially makes this the first modern found footage film wherein everything is presented as recorded by the participants as it's happening. Being ahead of the curve is often a good thing, but Aliotto has stated he was really sort of making it up as he went on this one since there wasn't anything quite like this type of found footage on the market at the time. He added the title cards because he really did want people to buy into the film being real and felt that any kind of official government tape like this would come with a title card explaining what the footage was and that it was part of an official sounding project like Project Blue Book. If you're unfamiliar with Project Blue Book, here's the official description from our old pal Wikipedia. Project Blue Book had two goals, namely to determine if UFOs were a threat to national security and to scientifically analyze UFO-related data. By the time Project Blue Book ended, it collected 12,618 UFO reports and concluded that most of them were misidentifications of natural phenomena like clouds, stars, and so on, or conventional aircraft. 
which I'm not going to lie. This seems sort of funny given all of the UFO talk in the past year or two. Like, we've definitely kind of changed our tune on that, I think. The film itself was almost entirely improvised, which is a bit of a double-edged sword. The actor playing Eric is an actual seasoned improv actor. Everyone else had some improv experience, but making an entire film on the fly is challenging even for the pros. It is interesting to note that Blair Witch directors Myrick and Sanchez would use a similar improvisational style when they made that film a decade later. The Blair Witch Project, as I recall, basically had a rough outline and the actors were given notes on where to be and situations. But many of those scenes were improvised by the actors as well, which is probably how we got the whole I kicked that map into the creek scene everyone laughs about. Like Blair Witch, Aliotto says he basically had a 10 to 20 page master list of scenes with notes on what should be the focus of the characters and so on. But the actors just took those notes and then made the scenes happen with minimal guidance from the director. He'd just tell them what was next or might offer directions subtly from behind the camera. Aliotto explains this basically gave him a real level of freedom while making the film. It was sort of like just walking on the set and filming a movie. The McPherson tape was shot on 8mm video, and the director says it was basically the first film shot on the format. All of the shots have some vignetting, which softens the lighting at the edges of the frame. Aliotto chose to do this primarily because he was shooting with a wide-angle lens, but in a relatively confined space in the house, so this gave it a little extra visual flourish and helped hide things from the edges of the various scene compositions the wide-angle lens would pick up. The family in the film is actually named the Van Heeses, not the McPhersons. So the title, The McPherson Tape, is at least a little bit misleading. The McPherson title came about almost a decade later when Aliotto remade the film as Alien Abduction, incident at Lake County in 1997. This was the UPN Network's first self-produced film and gave Aliotto another crack at the story after all the tragedy that befell his original version here. The director explains he made the film at roughly 23 years old. He only had $6,500 to work with thanks to a friend who wanted to be a producer, and he dumped every penny of that money into making the McPherson tape. This really is proof that you should stop making excuses and just chase your dreams. If he can make this movie for $6,500, what's holding you back? Like so many of us in the 80s, Aliotto really got interested in UFOs and aliens after reading Whitley Strieber's book Communion. Aliotto was hell-bent on getting the rights to the book and turning it into a film, but as a filmmaker with no experience, this was unlikely someone else already had the rights. So this was his compromise on some levels. He could make an alien film, but he'd make his very own alien film instead of adapting someone else's story. The lack of funds turned out to be sort of serendipitous since it forced Aliotto to think outside the box. With that level of budget, he wasn't going to be able to shoot on 16mm film, so videotape seemed like a more affordable alternative. This was not the first shot on video film by any stretch of the imagination, but it has gone on to become one of the more notable entries in the shot on video subgenre. He explains the idea of the film was basically to merge his love of aliens and UFOs with an Agatha Christie-esque Ten Little Indian story and merge it with War of the Worlds. It's an ambitious idea, but he mostly pulls it off. To add to the challenge imposed by the budget and technology, Aliotto also shot the film in one take. There are a few hidden cuts throughout, but the whole thing was basically done as one continuous take, except about halfway through, when the guys come back after spotting the landed UFO. The footage they shot then was too dark. <laughs> Man, have I been there. Because of this, they had to do some reshoots. So, as Aliotto likes to point out, it was mostly a one-take film, but technically, because they had to reshoot the second half of the film a few days later, it's more accurately a two-take film. Still pretty damn impressive. Aliotto helped direct the actors through every scene by literally being in it with them. He's the young brother with the new camcorder recording the whole movie. The McPherson tape is now viewed as sort of groundbreaking in terms of its impact on modern found footage films, but that wasn't exactly the case when it was made. 
Aliotto says his casting director was one of the first people to see the finished film, and she absolutely hated it, calling it, quote, amateur hour, and saying it was just an hour of people talking over each other and that you couldn't understand the dialogue. This is a pretty valid complaint. The improvised nature of the film and the whole single take thing meant that Aliotto could shoot the film quickly and cheaply, but at a cost. This guerrilla filmmaking style meant there was no real way to stop and reshoot or discuss what was working and what wasn't. So everyone's trying to add lib lines and make it feel real, and as such people continually talk over each other and spend a lot of time saying stuff that isn't important to anything in the plot. That being said, the approach does make the footage feel more real on some levels. The McPherson tape is not a polished film, and having videotaped my share of birthdays and Christmases, I know that you get a lot of people just blabbing and talking over each other in those situations. For a film that wanted to convince you it was real on some level, the amateur hour approach actually works to its benefit. At any rate, for years afterwards, this criticism stuck with the director, and when the film was booked at Fantastic Fest in 2019 for a 30th anniversary screening, he was worried it would be a gigantic flop with that cult film-savvy audience. But 30 years later, and with an understanding of how modern found footage worked in the wake of the McPherson tape, Aliotto discovered the film really did work, and that the crosstalk and actors talking over each other really did work from a realism perspective. In fact, Aliotto says he thinks the original film works better than his own remake these days. Anyway, the guys are out exploring why the lights are out, and they wander into the woods, where we get our first extraterrestrial experience as they stumble across a giant spaceship. This is another instance where the decision to shoot on a consumer-grade camcorder works to the film's benefit. Aliotto says they had $750 to make the alien ship, which is not going to make for a very impressive spacecraft in most circumstances. But here, shooting in the dark with the vignetting and the low resolution of the camcorder actually hide the cheapness in a way that again makes it feel way more realistic than it should. For his part, Aliotto felt the original ship looked a little too egg-like, so he cut some additional holes in it. But the ship you see in the film literally was made for less than a thousand bucks. Aliotto then cast three young girls as his aliens because they were sort of androgynous. The masks were basically impossible to see out of, though, so to keep these extraterrestrials from bumping into each other, they had to scrape off some of the black eye paint and give them direction from off-camera. This is one of the places where the film often loses viewers who bought into the real found footage component of the project. Well, clearly not everyone, as we'll discuss in a bit. The original cut of the film was roughly 75 minutes long, but Aliotto felt it was too chatty and all that, so they chopped down the present opening scene to get the film in at a much leaner 63 minutes. It was the right choice. The McPherson tape works best with the less is more approach, and at 63 minutes, it never quite wears out its welcome before the end credits roll. The director explains the improvised nature of the film made it easier to make with limited funds, but that they did regular rehearsals in his apartment in San Francisco. This way, at least everyone had an idea of how they were going to improv their way through the scenes and what Aliotto wanted them to achieve in each part of the film. For his part, he figures his neighbors probably thought he was crazy with people running around his apartment complex screaming about aliens. The film's almost entirely improvised nature did create challenges for Aliotto, who was working the camera. While he knew what the beat notes each scene needed to hit were, he was never entirely sure how the actors would get there, or how they'd be positioned when they did. So as the film kicks into its higher gear about halfway through, the camera work becomes more herky-jerky and erratic as Aliotto tries to keep up with what's happening in real time as it actually happens. With the film being so unique at the time, and again, we had not really seen this style of found footage prior to the McPherson tape, Aliotto found the film a tough sell. Even something like Cannibal Holocaust, often cited as the grandfather of the subgenre, still mixed in clearly scripted scenes with Robert Kerman on the hunt to find the found footage of the documentary filmmakers in that movie. 
The McPherson tape was completely unlike this and that everything recorded was supposed to be happening as real, which again, made this a real tough sell for distributors. When filming and editing were completed, Alioto assembled a sizzle reel and other marketing materials, drove to LA and spent two days showing it to places like Vestron and other film companies. All of them flat out rejected the film. Alioto tells a funny story about the Vestron meeting in particular, where the woman who screened the film yelled at him that the film was shit and told him not to come back until he made a real movie. <laughs> that seems harsh. This is probably exhibit A and the argument for why all Hollywood crap these days is basically the same five movies over and over. Anything different, they're not only not interested, but mean about it in the process. Alioto returned from the trip basically despondent that he made this micro-budgeted film that felt like it was new and ahead of the curve, and by his own admission now, probably too far ahead of the curve for its own good, and he'd had everyone basically slam a door in his face. Well, later that day, he got a call from a small production company who was not only interested, they wanted to actually release the movie. Working with Legacy was a bit of an adventure and gave Alioto an interesting glimpse into how the distribution side of the film business works. He recounts seeing poster art they'd come up with for the film, and it was emblazoned with fantastic quotes from places like Rolling Stone magazine. A young filmmaker was amazed they got such big outlets to watch his film, and the catch was they hadn't. They were just making up quotes for the poster. Alioto was terrified they'd get caught and he'd get sued, so they eventually relented and replaced them with similar glowing review quotes from places like Rolling Bone instead. With that settled, they were ready to distribute the film. Weeks go by and Alioto hadn't heard anything and was curious as to how things were going, so he gave him a call. His heart sank when they said it was not going well and it had burnt to the ground. Alioto thought this was a film term for a tanking in sales, but it was even worse. The warehouse where the master and prints were stored had literally burnt to the ground, taking the master of the McPherson tape and all of the prints with it. It genuinely felt like this was a movie that was about to become an infamous piece of lost media. The loss of the film in the fire was a huge blow to Alioto's filmmaking aspirations. He needed to turn a profit on the McPherson tape to fund another project, and now he was out the $6,500 and his movie. So he basically just walked away from it all until he gets a strange phone call in 92 or 93 from a guy who said his name had come up in relation to some found footage. Having no idea what the guy was talking about, Alioto asked him, what found footage? And the guy says, it's footage of a family being attacked by aliens. And he wanted to know who the people were and where they'd found this footage. For his part, Alioto cracked up, explaining it wasn't found footage at all. It was a movie he'd made. And the guy on the other end of the phone is basically just incredulous and explains to Alioto that he was just an attendee at the International UFO Convention and that the footage from the film was shown to attendees. I mean, that sounds pretty cool, right? Well, here's basically the point where the McPherson tape goes from being a cultural artifact as the first modern-style found footage film and turns into something even more infamous. This guy on the phone explains to Alioto that not only was the film footage shown to attendees, but it's also been presented as real footage of an alien encounter because the film had no credits, and people at this UFO convention were convinced this was all real. And lest you think this is just a bunch of UFO-obsessed civilians convincing themselves this thing was real footage, it even fooled retired Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Don Ware, who told attendees he was convinced it was real. At this point, you're probably wondering how the footage of the McPherson tape, aka UFO abduction, ever made it out into the world. All the copies were destroyed in a fire. Even Alioto didn't know of any existing copies, so where did the footage come from? After doing some sleuthing, Alioto figured out that while the prints were destroyed in that warehouse fire, they had made and sent out video store screeners of the film. 
Back in the day, companies would actually send video stores screener copies of films to help them decide if they wanted to carry it or so that they were familiar with the movie so that they could tell people what it was about or recommend it. Apparently, some of these screeners made it into the wild, where an enterprising video store clerk presumably took the film, dubbed it onto another tape minus all of the credits, then started circulating it amongst UFO enthusiasts as a real extraterrestrial encounter. I mean, it's so deviously brilliant in a lot of ways. I wish we actually knew who did this. Anyway, the guy on the phone was trying to suss out where the footage came from because it was huge on the UFO enthusiast circuit, and he had interview offers from shows like Hard Copy, Unsolved Mysteries, and more. Aliono really wanted to do Unsolved Mysteries, but felt that wasn't going to fly, because the mystery of the McPherson tape was very much solved. It was a movie. There were no real aliens. So he opted for a show called Encounters, where he got like a six-minute segment talking about the film under the guise of it basically being the greatest UFO hoax of all time. He showed up with footage, pictures of the girls in their alien masks, and more. It was a cool segment that aired back in like 1994, and I'm pretty sure it's still online somewhere and is definitely included on the Blu-ray for the film. This really should have been the end of the debate about the McPherson tape, but UFO people love a good conspiracy theory, and Alioto showing up to proclaim his film was just a film only convinced the hardcore stalwarts that he was a government plant sent out into the world to claim the footage is fake only to keep the X-Files-esque conspiracy about alien visitors secret. I mean, this is really why it's so hard to combat conspiracy theories. Any attempt to debunk one is just viewed as another conspiracy. And at this time, UFOs were again part of the national public discourse thanks to the success of the X-Files in 1993. So UPN, sensing an opportunity to tap into that, offered Alioto over a million bucks to remake the McPherson tape for the network in 1997. In another weird twist of fate, this new version wasn't destined for a much better fate than the original. Alioto brought the film in under budget, and believe me, it's oddly charming to listen to him talk about how they gave him like $1.75 to work with, and he had no real idea how to spend it all, and actually had a panic attack about it. But there was a regime change at UPN before the film debuted. The new team just absolutely shredded the updated version. Alioto says he still had an inside source at UPN who told him it was the worst screening of his career and that execs were throwing food at the screen complaining about the film. In the end, they tried to cut it down to an hour and got someone to come in and try to take Alioto's credit off the film, but he went out thanks to the Director's Guild. UPN then, in their infinite wisdom, tried to bury the film by dumping it on a Tuesday night in primetime. And to their eternal chagrin, it wound up being the highest rated primetime Tuesday show in UPN history to that point. They even ran it a second time, drew great ratings again, then proclaimed it would never air again. This is yet another example of how the suits have ruined the movie business. We let guys with no artistic talent determine the value of things they don't understand in the first place. Naturally, this new version had credits and all of the usual movie stuff. But after the film aired, there was a poll asking people whether they thought the remake was actual found footage of a real alien encounter, and 49% of the audience was still convinced they'd watched a real alien attack on a helpless family. The broadcast of Alien Abduction and Incident in Lake County didn't merely entertain, and clearly ignited a whole new wave of conspiracy theories. Viewers, captivated by the seemingly authentic portrayal of an alien encounter, began to question the nature of the footage. Theories suggesting a government cover-up, extraterrestrial involvement, and hidden agendas quickly gained traction. One of the prevailing theories revolves around the idea that the government orchestrated the remake as a form of soft disclosure, a subtle way to prepare the public for the existence of extraterrestrial life. 
Supporters of this theory point to the realistic portrayal of the events, the involvement of professional actors, and the broadcast's television format, lending an air of legitimacy to the narrative. This was only exacerbated by a theory that before this film and its remake, there was an unedited six-hour cut of the true tape, which has either been hidden from the public eye or lost forever. However, this is most likely just an urban legend. This film has been confirmed multiple times to have been a work of fiction made before the found footage genre became popular. Conspiracy theorists also speculate about the manipulation of reality within the remake. The theory suggests that certain elements of the broadcast were intentionally altered or enhanced to either hide the truth or disseminate disinformation. The realistic performances and special effects fueled suspicions that the creators had access to classified information or collaborated with government agencies. I gotta be honest, this one always cracks me up, because the remake looks like a TV movie, and it's not particularly well done. Another compelling theory proposes that alien abduction incident in Lake County was a social experiment conducted by unknown entities. The goal, according to this theory, was to observe public reactions to an extraterrestrial event and gauge the level of belief and skepticism within society. The broadcast's impact on viewers and subsequent conspiracy theories would then be part of the experiment's data collection. Look, I can't even begin to describe the weird rabbit holes you will find yourself in when you start researching these two films. For his part, Alioto seems sort of mixed about the enduring reaction to his film. On the one hand, he's delighted that the UFO community and researchers like Donald Ware found the film accurate enough compared to reported UFO encounters that they thought it was real. On the other, he's endured years of attacks from conspiracy theorists arguing that the film he made was real and he's just the tool of the government to keep the truth buried. It doesn't help that men like Don Ware turn up in the encounter segment, still insisting that at least some of the film might be real. I mean, here's his closing statement from that segment. I am not convinced this thing is a hoax because I know that our government policy is to insert disinformation into every major UFO case or release documents or possibly every home video that gets on the market. The reason is to keep the public from getting too excited about our alien visitors, hence the sticker is on the back of the video saying this is a dramatization, which allows people not to accept it if they don't have to. Of course, Alioto might be at least partially to blame for the enduring myth that his film is real. He based his designs and the story off of a wide variety of reported alien encounters, which potentially makes the film seem very real and eerily accurate to anyone immersed in that subculture. Anyway, our friends at AGFA and Bleeding Skull have released the McPherson tape on Blu-ray a few years back, and the film is probably available for streaming on YouTube, Tubi, and a bunch of other streaming services. Interestingly enough, since the master burned, Alioto had to basically reconstruct this for the release by ripping a version off of YouTube, which he then copyright claimed. So thank God for whoever took it upon themselves to release the no-credits version out into the UFO community back in the day. Without that, this film might have truly been lost media and given its historical significance as arguably the birthing point for what we think of as found footage cinema today, that would have been a tragic loss. So, go out and pick up the disc. There's a link in the show notes. Alright, let's take another quick break, and then we'll come back and I'll give you some perfect movies to pair with your screening of the McPherson tape. No one wants a movie night that's just one movie, so allow me to be your cult movie concierge and suggest two more movies that go perfectly with the McPherson tape. My first choice here is pretty obvious. Willie Strieber's communion influenced both my interest in alien stories and Dean Aliotto's film, so why not grab the cinematic adaptation of the book, featuring the inimitable Christopher Walken in the leading role, and experience that one for yourself. It's only on DVD as far as I can tell, but it's still highly recommended. 
If you'd like to make your movie night a movie marathon, then round things out with a screening of Robert Lieberman's harrowing Fire in the Sky. This one has a great cast and is utterly terrifying and reportedly based on a true story. Let me tell you, we had this at the theater I worked in during college, and me and my dearly departed buddy Lance would stay after clothes every night with some booze and Dunkin' Donuts and watch this thing in a dark and empty theater and scare the shit out of ourselves with it. It's an absolute classic. All right, I've prattled on long enough. Let's wrap this thing up. In the vast universe of extraterrestrial lore, few tales grip the imagination as tightly as the McPherson tape. This captivating saga blends the realms of horror and conspiracy theories, offering a chilling narrative that has sparked discussions, debates, and numerous conspiracy theories. Director Dean Aliotto's little film, made for a paltry $6,500 and once thought lost in a warehouse fire, has since gone on to become a bona fide cult phenomenon. What's really amazing about it all is this strange little film has become a major historical touchstone in two wildly different arenas. It is, for all intents and purposes, the birthing point of what we think of as found footage today, and it came into existence a decade before the Blair Witch made that subgenre a staple. But beyond that, the film has become a huge deal in the alien abduction community, still terrifying true believers and sparking what feels like outlandish conspiracy theories in its wake nearly three decades after it blipped onto the public radar and even after countless disclaimers that it's not real. You really can't buy that kind of publicity or called infamy. The McPherson Tape is a film wherein the story of its creation and how it survived and morphed into a sort of cult phenomenon is maybe more interesting than the actual film, although I'll cop to really liking the film here too. The lo-fi aesthetic and sort of amateurish performances, and I don't mean the actors are bad, I mean the improvised nature of the film doesn't make it feel slick or professional, really add to the genuine feeling of the film. If you're willing to suspend your disbelief a bit, it's easy to see how this one duped people. But even if you don't, it's still an interesting piece of history and well worth seeing for that alone. So what do you think? Have you seen the McPherson tape or is this your first experience with it? Leave me a comment and share your thoughts on this one. I may feature some in a future episode. If you're watching this podcast on YouTube, please be sure to like and subscribe. If you're on another podcast platform, consider leaving me a review and sharing with your friends. It helps me keep making more of these. Until next time, I'm Mike Bracken, and you've just experienced another trip to B-Movie Babylon. The video vault is now closed. <laughs>